Welcome everyone to Denkoe Sashin. Maybe we could go around briefly and say our names and we could repeat back uh, the name after you say it. We all get used to the names, especially me. Uh, my name's Eric, but that's not who I really am. <laughs> Eric. 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 Kathy. 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 Rob. 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 Tokyo. Tokyo. Well, some of the past years when I've come here, we've had Genzoe Sashin. Some of you have been to that. And uh, we haven't yet had a Denkoe Sashin. So these are both traditions from our lineage in Japan, Genzoe Sashin, based on Dogen's Shobo Genzo, a Sashin where we're sitting a lot of Zazen, but also exploring the teachings of Dogen and a Genzoe Sashin. And Denkoe Sashin is exploring the teachings of Keizan Zenji's Denko Roku. Denko Roku is the Transmission of Light record. And A is like assembly. So this is a transmission of light assembly this weekend. And as I understand it in, in modern Japan, the I, th- I think there's various temples that do... Th- Genzoe and Denkoe Sashins, but I think mainly it originated and still is carried on as a, as a practice at Eheiji, Dogen's huge uh, temple that he founded and it's still thriving in Japan. They do, um, I think, like three-week or you know, long, long Sashin, study kind of Sashin, um, going through a lot of the Shobo Genzo. And at uh, Sojiji, which is the monastery Keizan founded, they have Denkoe Sashin. I think also kind of lo- longer than a weekend. Uh, and these, two, these are the two head mountains of Soto Zen, Eheji and Sojiji, founded by Dogen and Keizan. And we consider Dogen and Keizan like the kind of co-founders of this lineage of Soto Zen. We tend to talk more about Dogen and emphasize him as the Japanese founder. But the fourth generation ancestor in our lineage, Keizan, is in Japan really considered like a co-founder. And um, Keizan really helped to popularize Soto Zen at that time. And this is the 1300s in Japan. And uh, their, their teaching, Dogen and Keizan, is kind of like epitomized by their, these, these great works. The Shobogenzo of Dogen, which is this 95 
essays, chapters on different topics, and Kazan's Denko Roku Transmission of Light record, which is 53 chapters on, on the ancestors of our lineage. It's shorter than the Shobogenzo. And uh, it was talks given by Kazan during practice periods in his temple. And uh, I think over, over some years, maybe like weekly talks or something like that. <clears throat> and it's particularly on the awakening stories of the ancestors of our lineage, starting with Shakyamuni Buddha all the way up to... Uh, Keizan's teacher's teacher in Japan. So all the Indian, 28 Indian ancestors, all the Chinese uh, ancestors from Bodhidharma up to Tian Tong, Rujin, Dogen's teacher, and then those first few generations in Japan. Celebrating a, a particular lineage. And the style of Dogen's teaching and Kazan's teaching is a little bit different. I mean, there's a lot of overlap. They're the, they're the co-founders of the same lineage, and yet the way they express Dharma is slightly different. And maybe as a summary, in the um, book we have here is a translation by Francis Cook, a Zen priest and translator from from the Maizumi Roshi lineage. Uh, in his introduction to this Denko Roku, Francis Cook says, In the course of documenting the ancestral succession over the generations, Kazan centers his talks primarily on two topics. One is the necessity to be totally committed to awakening, to take the Zen life most seriously, and to make a supreme effort in Zen practice. This is also a focal point in Dogen's writing, and both these ancestors are equally concerned with the training of their students and the selection of successors. The second emphasis of this book and indeed, the overwhelming central focal point of all these chapters is the light of the title of this work. This is the Sino-Japanese character for light, guan, or ko, ko, denko, roku. Endumanasao, kokyo, senko. It is this light that is transmitted from teacher to disciple as the disciple discovers this light within herself. In fact, once the light is discovered, this is the transmission, Francis Cook says. This light is one's Buddha nature or true self, with a capital S in this English translation. They don't have capitals in Japanese. <laughs> Kazan uses a number of striking and provocative epithets and titles for this true self, 
including true self. <laughs> In quotes there. That one, that person, that old fellow, and the lord of the house. Such language is uncommon in Dogen's writings, as is the focus of discussing the existence and nature of this old fellow. But that's part of what constitutes Kazan Zen as distinct from Dogen Zen. That's a nice summary of, uh, of a little different emphasis these, these two ancestors. That suggests maybe a little more in those epithets, some of them a little more warm, intimate familiarity to give that feeling that this is you. Yeah, this is you, some intimate familiarity, and also a kind of like um, Kazan is not so afraid to make these positive statements about this old fellow, about Buddha nature. Dogen is a little more, I would say, conservative about making sure that there's, we're not grasping any graspable entity like a true self. So Dogen uh, talks more about emptiness and ungraspability, and, uh, whereas Kazan is... is uh, more courageous in talking about the indestructible, um, unshakable, permanent essence of true self. Sometimes when I read Kazan, I, I, I think if, if his, what was it, great great grandfather in Dharma, Dogen, was alive and listened to Kazan, you might say, oh, Kazan, um, uh, you better be careful there. People might, um, might uh, misinterpret what you're saying and think that there's some thing here within us that can be grasped. It's not really like that, but... Uh, uh, That is a kind of feature of the Buddha nature teachings, and Kazan brings it out. So I thought this weekend we could look at a few of these old stories, um, some of the Indian ancestors of our tradition. Thought that we could start with Jayata. We chanted the names of these ancestors this morning. Jayata Dayosho. He lived in the 4th century, sometime in there. We don't have exact dates for these ancient Indian ancestors. He's the 20th ancestor, Mahakashapa being the first. And uh, so Kazan tells a story, like the awakening story of the ancestor. Then he tells some of the like life circumstances, life story of the ancestor. And these are all like um, already collected in China in the um, another huge volume, much bigger than this, called the Record of Transmitting the Lamp, the Dento Roku, the K 
we'd say in Japanese, the Keitoku Dentoroku, it's compiled in the Keitoku era in China. And it's a collection not just of the Soto lineage, but all the different Zen lineages, beginning with the Buddha through Bodhidharma and then branching out to all like hundreds and I don't know if it's in the thousands, but at least hundreds and hundreds of Chinese Zen ancestors and their whatever stories they had about them. And there's translations of this in English now, too. So Dogen, I mean, Kazan here is, um, is pulling out these stories from this massive lamp collection, uh, transmitting the lamp, or transmitting the flame, sometimes translated. And, uh, but he's only pulling out the stories of this particular single lineage leading up to his teacher's teacher, whereas the the original lamp record is all these branching streams of lineages. So I'm kind of quoting here from this lamp record. The 20th ancestor was Venerable Jayata. Once the 19th ancestor, Kumarata, Kumarata Dayosho, said, although you already have faith or trust in the karma of the three times, still you have not yet clarified some other points. So, to say here, karma of the three times is uh, how the effects of our actions play out in this life, that's one time, in the next life after this life is the second time, and in um, subsequent lives like third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, <laughs> up to thousands of lifetimes in the future. It's an old way the Buddha talked about karma of the three times. And Dogen has a whole essay called Sanjigo, which means karma in the three times. So um, we'll get into this more, but uh, the 19th ancestor says, although you, have already, you already have trust and how karma plays out in these three periods of time, still you have not yet clarified the fact that karma is produced from delusion. Delusion exists as a result of dualistic consciousness. Consciousness results from ignorance, and ignorance results from mind, true mind. Mind is originally pure without birth or cessation, without doing or effort, without karmic retribution, without superiority or inferiority. Very tranquil and very vivid. If you accept this teaching, you will become the same as all the Buddhas. All good and evil, conditioned and unconditioned, are like dreams and illusions. Hearing this, Venerable Jayata grasped the deep meaning of these words and aroused the wisdom that he had since time immemorial. immemorial. He aroused his innate wisdom when he these teachings. So that's the story. <clears throat> and um, 
it's probably a story about karma. It's a lot about karma here. And uh, it seems woven through the stories of several of these Indian ancestors in particular. There's stories about karma and rebirth. Not so much in the, in the Chinese ancestor stories, but a little bit. And it might be that partly when they were collecting these stories together that in the Chinese records that they thought about that mystical land in the West called India, where there are these teachings of, um, a lot of teachings of the Buddha about karma and rebirth. And so they kind of, those are the stories that sometimes got emphasized in these Zen records of Indian ancestors. With a, of course, there's always a Zen twist on these stories. So I thought this is a nice chance to explore this issue of karma. Everyone's heard the word karma. I think it's in English dictionaries now as a Sanskrit word, but easily misunderstood. And um, it seems kind of straightforward, but I think the more we get into it, the more um, kind of complex these teachings of karma are in the Buddha's teaching. Particularly, we have, I think everybody has heard in the Buddha's teaching, this teaching of anatman, or no separate independent self. And so um, sometimes we wonder about how does that fit in with karma? Because karma teachings in kind of pre-Buddhist India and Buddha's own teachings are about the effects of our actions coming back to person who performed the action. So how can you have that kind, of, um, that kind of theory if you don't have some continuous person or self? Isn't that a question worth exploring <laughs> about karma? I think in, uh, my understanding is that at least in some of the pre-Buddhist Indian traditions that also taught karma, with a continuous, um, personal, everlasting self, an Atman being a kind of individual, personal, sometimes even called like a soul of a person that, that continues unchanging from lifetime to lifetime, and that that kind of is the carrier of karma. And so um, it's uh, something like that. Whereas there is no kind of entity, personal entity, that carries on lifetime to lifetime in the Buddhist teaching. And yet there's a teaching of a person. So uh, I think one way that's helpful to look at the, the conventional teaching of what we call a person in Buddha's Dharma is that a, a person really... Person is like this name, right? It's a, it's a convenient name for something that's very complex. And as soon as we name something very complex with one name, we start to almost feel like it's some sort of entity. So it's good to remember that person, or like Kokyo, for me, each of our names, it's just a convenient name to designate this, um, this complex, changing stuff, <clears throat> particular changing stuff that we call a person. 
So one thing is good to remember is a person's a convenient name. It's a convenient name for this particular um, thing. We could call, I think a nice way to, to talk about it is, it's a causal series of body and mind experiences. A person is a causal series of body and mind experiences. So um, that is how we do think of ourselves as body and mind experiences. <laughs> That's pretty much all we got to go on. Mm-hmm. Like we're just every time, every time there is <laughs> for us there's an experience of body and mind. <laughs> that, that sounds so passive. Yeah, that's true. So maybe we could add into this definition um, a causal series of body and mind experiences and intentions. And really, I think um, we could say and intentions, but actually. One way to look at intention in the Buddha's teaching is it's another experience happening in body and mind. But it doesn't feel so passive I think, to talk about. Intention is a huge aspect of our moment-to-moment experience. In fact, the Buddha even said, this is in the Abhidharma, Buddhist psychology teachings, there's a mental factor present in every mind moment called intention. <laughs> so, uh, every, ex- every experience, every moment of experience of this body and mind, there is, sometimes in the foreground and sometimes in the background, this mental factor called chetana in Sanskrit. It means intention uh, or volition. Interesting to me that it's in every moment, even when we feel like I'm just... I'm not doing anything, I'm not saying anything, I'm not even thinking anything, but there's maybe a slight, um, you know, directionality or volitionality of, of the mind called intention. And sometimes it comes to the forefront and like, I'm gonna like pound my fist on this lectern now and, and bodily enact this intention. Then we seems more clear, but sometimes it's just seems almost passive, but it's still there, intention. So body and mind experiences including and especially intention, especially for today's discussion of karma. And causal series, this causal series part, I think is important to um, see how the Buddha talks about this, is that um, this is kind of like early Buddhist teachings, um, foundational Buddhist teachings. Is like every moment of body and mind arises for arises. It it kind of abides for just a moment, a tiniest moment, and then it ceases. This is kind of like radical impermanence. Every every experience arises. Even abiding is a little bit too is a little bit too long just to even use the word. I think it's almost like it arises and immediately ceases. 
is kind of, it's this sort of this model of talking about experience. Nothing lasts for more than a moment. And, uh, but when this moment of experience ceases, that cessation uh, becomes a condition for another moment to arise right afterwards. And the next moment of experience then can be said to be arising dependent on the previous moment of experience. This is what we call a causal series. And it's a particular, each of us has our own individual causal series. Like, so this body and mind experience arises, it ceases, and then that cessation becomes a condition for another moment of experience in this body and mind. And it's so similar to the previous moment that we feel like it's some continuous self in this early Buddhist model. But uh, the Buddha is saying, really, it's, it's just um, because it's happening so fast. It uh, seems like it's a continuous something. But it's really arising and ceasing experiences in this dependent kind of way. And we're, our individual, as individual people, we're also interacting with each other and with the world. So we're also in, we're interdependent with each other and with with the environment that we're in. So uh, so our causal series of experiences is arising not just dependent on the previous experience, but dependent largely on the previous experience of this body and mind. But also it's being affected by you all and the wind and the water and so on. Does that make sense? So it's just, there's this big kind of ungraspable workings of dependently arising and ceasing stuff. And within that, there are these unique causal series we call individual people that are interdependent with each other, but they're, um, we might even say the primary condition for the next moment of body and mind experience is the previous body and mind experience of this causal series. That's why it's not the next moment I suddenly don't become like Tracy and he becomes me. It's like, no, we, we keep our individual causal series even though we're affecting each other. Does that model include an, an identifier with a causal stream? Identifier? Yes. Somebody's saying, this is my causal stream. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. I think it, when we identify with the causal stream and say, especially if we say the causal stream is me and it's more than just a causal stream, it's some sort of continuous entity, yes. that would be the teaching that the Buddha is trying to get at when he says not-self. Or another way to talk about this not-self teaching is that it's so, we feel and as if there's some owner of the causal series called me. It's my causal series of body and mind. It's my experiences. There's these experiences of body and mind happening to me. And then we say, well, who's that me that they're happening to? And when we look closer, we see that there isn't some other me that they're happening to. It is just body and mind experiences happening. There, nobody owns them. But we feel as if 
I am a kind of continuous owner and manager. <laughs> so the me owner and controller is the is the extra. Yeah, that's the extra. That would be called the illusion of the separate self. Mm-hmm. The, um, not to be confused with Kazan's true self. <laughs> Gets a little tricky here. Kazan's true self is is we haven't really talked about it yet, but um, here we have these two other types of self. Now, we, one is called the conventional person or conventional self. We can even say, like, like I had breakfast this morning. There was a body and mind that um, had the experience of breakfast this morning. We're allowed to talk that way. The causal series experienced breakfast, but then. That's just a conventional self. That's okay. But then we feel like, no, there was this me that um, had the experience of breakfast this morning. This experiencer that had that experience, that's the illusory one that when we talk about, Buddha talks about anatman or not-self. Can you, can you follow the distinction between the conventional self that's a constantly, totally impermanent arising and ceasing and then the false self would be the uh, either grasping that causal series as some sort of permanent, personal, singular, independent, separate entity, or grasping a kind of like oh, myself as a kind of owner, experiencer, manager, controller of the causal series. You see, there's two types of self. It's a little, it's a, it's kind of subtle, but I think this is important when we, when we talk about not self in the Buddha's teaching because it can be kind of confusing. Say, so there's no self, but then who's this? Who, who, we, who? How can I talk with you? <clears throat> well, it's causal series are interacting with each other. Buddha doesn't deny that kind of self. He just denies this kind of this separate sort of owner of experience. So. Um, Part of the, this moment-to-moment arising and ceasing um, causal series of body and mind experiences, as Mako is pointing out, is intention. And it's always it's part of the body and mind experience, according to the Buddha. It's a universal mental factor. There's always some intention. And uh, sometimes it's even we take this intention to be our separate, independent self. Like when I, like I, one way we can, we can talk about this separate self is the controller. It's kind of like intention. But it's kind of a feeling like this mental factor that's just also arising and ceasing dependent on conditions is some sort of true, um, like independent controller, like a free will that can, do what it wants, independent of other conditions, something like that. So, um, really, there's just intention conditioned by other intentions as part of this causal series of body and mind experiences, and uh, and the intent. And Buddha teaches that every intention um, has an effect. This word karma. There's one early sutta where the Buddha says, what is karma? Karma is chetana. <laughs> Using the Sanskrit. The, 
the word karma that means action, literally means action. What is it really? It's chetana, meaning intention. So really what we karma is intentional action of body, speech, and mind. I think is a good English definition of karma. It's intentional action of body, speech, and mind. And the Buddha says any intentional action of body, speech, and mind always has an effect. And the Buddha says the effect comes back to the individual. He doesn't use the word Atman. Actually, I think it might be, it might even be Atman, but there's a sutra in the early teachings where he, um, he talks about it this way, even though we know he teaches on Atman. So um, I think we have to understand individual, in this case, to be the individual causal series of body and mind. This causal series has an intention to um, strike its fist on the lectern, and then um, action has an effect. It's like a little bit, a little bit sore on that. That often the the effects of actions are um, are experiences, uh, pleasant or unpleasant experiences are generally the effects of intentional actions. So there's a slightly unpleasant experience from that <laughs> that uh, intentional action. For notice how it happened to this causal series, but it happened in a subsequent moment. We might even say the next moment, it happened pretty quickly that I felt the effect of that action, but it was like a, a following moment. And sometimes the effects of our intentional actions come even later, which is, I think, even harder thing to understand. If there's no self that's kind of storing the effects of our actions, then how does the effect come like the next day, for example? With no, with no continuous self. This is, I think, good to try to clarify these points. So, yes. I've come to think of, of karma, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, as a result or this, this intentional, volitional action of body, mm-hmm. speech, or mind generates. Mm-hmm. Karma generates a result that is either yeah. immediate or two days later. Yeah. Am I understanding that? Yeah. Actually? Yeah, so I think. Often in English, karma starts getting used in this to talk more about the effect. And um, like, like if somebody wins the lottery, their friend will say, you must have good karma. Yeah. Or, or, that's good, or that's good karma to win the lottery. But I think strictly speaking, karma actually means the cause of the result, the action, the intentional action. But of course, it's related because the karmic effect is the result. Is the result. So in the Buddhist teaching, it's more like, I think strictly speaking, we're talking about the effect, we could say the karmic effect, the effect of an action. And karma, strictly speaking, means the action itself. But we're talking about the principle of karma or the teaching of karma, then we could say it's the, it's the principle of cause and effect, karmic cause and effect. So uh, we, you loosely get you, gets used as the effect. Um, but how does the effect come back uh, to, to that um, causal series later? 
So when 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 I I thought of it, that maybe gets at this is like, if a person is a name for this causal series of body mind experiences, uh, if we look at a river, a river is also a name, a convenient name for a causal series of water, right? It's a there's no actual entity called a river. If you go up close to it and try to get a hold of the river, there's no one thing called a river. It's a causal series of a bunch of water at the headwaters of the Mississippi. If you like are, you know, swimming there, you can say you're swimming in the same river as the person who's down there at the delta, but it's only a way of talking. Really, it's like completely um separate pieces of water, right? But they're part of the same causal series. So if some of the water in this causal series up near the headwaters um, erodes part of the bank of the river and takes away some of the particles of soil, and then those particles of soil are like traveling along with the causal series of water all the way down to the delta. And at the delta in Mississippi, they start to get deposited as this silt In the same causal series of river, and maybe the, and they get deposited as silt, as silt like um, weeks later than when they were eroded at the headwaters. So you could say um, that's an example of this kind of impersonal process in a river where there's some effect of this action. The river is, has, does this action of wearing away some particles. And then there are effects of that action way several weeks later in the same causal series downstream. But notice that there's no, there's no entity called river in this process, even though the effects of a, of a particular action come back to the same causal series we call the Mississippi River. Do you see how that is somewhat like um, this could work in a person? without there being a, a, a self that's kind of like storing the uh, effects of the actions. The, the actions ripen or come to fruition in the same causal series that performed the action. I say same causal series, but not exactly the same body and mind that did the action. Because this body and mind that's arising now is a slightly different body and mind than even one second ago. It's a different body and mind dependent on the previous body and mind. But we can conventionally say it's the same causal series. And causal series is nice because it's not a thing, right? A causal series is just a, um, a rising and ceasing... Um, uh, what is it? Process. Process. Process, yeah, exactly. Follow so far? Some of this to me sounds like how we talk about um, the relative and the absolute, and, and like where we, like we say, um, out of convenience, you know, we have conventional ways of talking about things, but then kind of underneath that, we know that, you know, like, like the idea that everything's connected. Like we know everything's connected, but we refer to things as distinct out of convenience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I would say strictly speaking, the, talking about these two truths of conventional and ultimate truth, that um, I would say more like this causal series is a conventional truth, actually. It's, um, it's, a, it's a conventional, it's a convention has to do with convenient and um, a way of talking about something. And um, it's a con- way I would put it is that yeah, the causal series of body and mind experiences or self as a convenient name for the causal series is a conventional truth. The illusion of the separate self that's the owner of the causal series is not a truth at all. It's just a falsehood. And the ultimate truth would be more like this true self that Kazan's going to talk about, or emptiness. Emptiness mean, means like there isn't even really a causal series. So it's a slightly different way of talking about two truths. Uh, yeah, the ultimate truth is like completely unspeakable and ungraspable and, um, and where nothing's even happening. <laughs> Sometimes they talk about in emptiness, the Heart Sutra says, therefore given emptiness, there um, is no... Um, uh, all things neither arise nor cease in emptiness. So that's like kind of ultimate truth. And then the conventional truth is arising and ceasing of a causal series. And then, um, then the separate, in, separate illu- illusion of the separate independent self is not even conventional truth. It doesn't even get to be called the truth at all. The feeling in the body and mind of the separate self, we could say, is part of the conventional tra- self. The way we... See, we feel ourselves to be a separate entity because that, that's our experience. So that's a conventional truth. But the actual separate self is not even conventionally true. <laughs> so, um, so that's a little bit about karma. And, um, and now we can go on with this story. With this in mind. So, um, Kazan's telling the story from the old records. Uh, Ancestor Jayata was from northern India. His wisdom was exceedingly deep, and there was no limit to his ability in converting and guiding people. So he was already a Dharma teacher, it sounds like, before he met uh, Kumarata. At that time, he met the 19th ancestor, Kumarata, in central India and asked him this. He said, Although my parents have always had faith in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, they have always been in poor health. For the most part, whatever they have done has not worked out as they wished. He's kind of questioning this karmic thing, right? This cause and effect. Did, did I mention already that part of the Buddha's teaching is that wholesome actions of body, speech, and mind, wholesome means non-harmful and beneficial actions of body and mind, always lead to beneficial results, meaning pleasant experiences for that causal series that did them, and unwholesome actions of body, speech, and mind harmful to others or ourselves 
always lead to unpleasant results for the causal series that perform them. And this is, I think, before Buddha's time, they had that teaching too. And it's kind of like, I don't know, morality 101 or something. It's like, oh, I think all religions have some teaching like this. And uh, Buddha had it too. It sounds almost naive to say it. Really? It's always like that? But that is part of the Buddha's teaching. Um, so that's, that's what um, I think Jayata's question here. My parents have always had faith in the three treasures, which is a good thing, according to Buddha. But they've always had bad health, and what, what they've done has not worked out as they wished. However, <laughs> my neighbors have always been engaged in the cruel practices of outcasts. And I think it's saying this is like the Chandala um, caste in India. And um, one translation interprets it as um, butchers. Because I think often in India it is like that, that the, this, the, the low caste becomes the butchers, which nobody really wants to do. And um, it is a cruel practice to be a butcher, actually, to sentient beings, right? But these neighbors that have done that, they've always been in good health, and their efforts have always been successful. Why are they so lucky and fortunate while well, my family has had bad luck or bad fortune? He asks the teacher. And uh, the teacher, Kumarata, answers, What is there to doubt? There are three times for good and bad karmic retribution. Generally, people see the kind and compassionate die young, the cruel live a long time, the wicked prosper, and the good find only misfortune. <laughs> Generally, they see, at least sometimes they see that. They conclude that there is therefore no cause and effect, and words such as misfortune and blessings are just empty words. In particular, they do not understand that the result follows the cause as a shadow follows a form and an echo follows sounds without a hair's breadth of confusion. Even after the lapse of millions of eons, there is no break in the cause and effect relationship or no destroying the result of karma. And the causal conditions will have an effect or a result. Uh, Kumarata says. And when Jayata heard this, his doubt was suddenly cleared up. So that's the teaching of um, karma in the three times. And Dogen's Shobogenzo, Sanjigo, karma in the three times. Dogen has lots of stories kind of fanciful old stories about karmic cause and effect. And uh, it was apparently written like later in Dogen's life where, um, interestingly, Dogen seemed to emphasize these kind of like radical non-duality teachings kind of earlier in his life. And then, um, and then later in his life, people say he got, I don't know if you say more conservative or... He just became much more interested in like, in like precepts and karma and these more conventional, all kind of dualistic teachings. Interestingly. So, so I'm sorry. Was he saying? Um, yeah. Well, don't worry. They'll get theirs. 
you know, several million years from now, and, and don't worry, your 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 family will get. Yeah. Just I think that is what he's saying. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That the, that um, that's why we can see good things happen to bad people, and bad <laughs> things happen to good people. Is uh, yeah. It, what goes around comes around. It's going to take a while. Maybe not in this lifetime, because we see. Well, actually, they died. They died totally happy. They never had any problems, even though they did all this cruelty. And so, in a way, the the rebirth teaching, um, maybe partly is emphasized in all these Indian traditions, partly to account for to to actually um, make the karma teaching work. Because if you, if you only have one life to have it work out, it, then it doesn't seem like it works out. So I think karma and rebirth are often taught together as a, as a topic, and um, they're one piece. And you know, rebirth is um, not so emphasized in, in Zen tradition, but um, if we're talking about karma, it does seem like it may be important. Um, and also... Maybe it's maybe it's easy to see now from this discussion about the causal ser- the person has a causal series of experiences that um, in that understanding, of course, there can also be rebirth without um, there being a, a personal, independent, separate self. Right? We're talking about re- in the Buddha's teaching, it's rebirth of the causal series of experiences. Hard to, you know, prove exactly because um, part of what seems to happen is at death, um, it seems to like erase the memory of the um, previous lifetimes. Part of the trick of of this dependent co-arising. I don't know if it's a cruel trick or actually a very kind trick. Mm -hmm. The evolving of dependent arising of living beings is that... um, Death is sort of like a reset button on memory, but not on karma, <laughs> according to the Buddhist teaching. So the effects, if they haven't ripened in this, in the particular causal series, will have to ripen in a later um, experience of that particular causal series. And I remember we talked talked about this last year, I think too. And I remember T- Tim brought up the point about what about um. Um, as I recall, it was something uh, uh, about uh, what about looking at um, rebirth as like less individualized? I think more like that, right? Like um, there's effect. We know there's effects of our actions, and the effects play out over like all of um, a whole generation in society, and then the next generation of society will reap the rewards, the the effects of the previous generation, like climate change, right? the next generation is going to have the effects of our fuel burning. We know that that's definitely true. Um, that's also cause and effect. And, karma, and kind of group karma, group karmic cause and group karmic effect, I think we could say. It's true. And in the way you're talking about it now, there could be, like, when you think of a causal series, there could be causal series within a causal series. So that's a sort of more societal... Uh, yeah, we could say that society is a causal series too, right? right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, this is, like the human species is a particular causal series. It's a little different from the um, mosquito 
um, population as a whole. And then even bigger, even the mosquitoes and humans together are part of the causal, are causal series. And then the rocks and trees and walls, tiles and pebbles, even bigger causal series. Yeah, so all of that is true. And, um, and yet we also have this Buddhist teaching of, this, of these um, individual karmic streams go, going in the smaller direction, getting narrower and narrower. Then we have like... Um, individual yeah I think we could say individual street causal series streams which aren't entities or selves but um, uh, but there's that teaching too the, the, the effect comes back to the to the particular causal series as well as we could say um, the larger field of causal series one thing I'm noticing in, in, um, in the Buddhist teaching of the three times and in the story so far is that we're kind of talking about like this moment and going forward. Mm-hmm. And then you just started to sort of say, well, like, what about previous moments and how they're um, conditioning this moment? Yeah. And it doesn't seem like that's part of the teaching of the three times. Mm. I think I think it's it's understood as like our present body and mind experience that each of us is having right now is completely dependent on a bunch of past body and mind experiences in this life and um, according to the Buddhist teaching, many previous lifetimes. So we can say, um, again, like uh, that would be also part of this part of this ethical dimension of like somebody who's um, having a great happy life. In this lifetime, while causing a lot of harm and, and cruelty, we might say, why are they having, even though their effects are going to come back in a later life, why is their life so happy now? And the Buddhist teaching would be, they did a lot of good in past lives. It's really always, always that the, that the <clears throat> happiness and unhappiness in particular, those qualities, which aren't the totality of our experience, they're just one aspect but that happiness, unhappiness, pleasant, unpleasant quality is, again, not completely. There's not like karmic determinism where it's completely determined by just karma, but a large part of our happiness and unhappiness is, according to these early teachings of Buddha, um, dependent on previous actions in this causal series, in this lifetime and previous lifetimes. So a good effect causes happiness and a bad effect causes unhappiness? Well, the effect, happiness is the effect. Okay. A good, a good cause, good action, leads to a happy effect. So, so um, in terms of cause and effect, the intention is always the cause in this model, and the happiness or unhappiness is always the result. And by good, again, good and bad, I think, what does that mean? I mean, in a way you could say, like our bodhisattva precepts, but they're really just defining um, harm and non-harm. I think it's really what it comes down to, is, is what's harmful or not harmful to living beings, other, to other causal series. Although it seems like there could be, some things could be good at times. And yeah, times. that's right. Yeah, so, so there's no black and white thing of this act this action done in any circumstance is always harmful 
that's it's true that it's that's the con- the complication of karma is that it's the particular action at a particular time and circumstance leads to a particular result in a particular time and circumstance and sometimes when the in the early sutras and the buddha's talking about things that are like difficult to discern I think he's saying something like subtle impermanence you know emptiness truly deeply understanding emptiness is very hard to really discern and which is kind of like sort of ultimate teaching but then he throws karma in there and like which we think of that's pretty straightforward but he says karma is one of these things that like you cannot figure out we can fit we can understand the principle as we've been talking about it but exactly like you know what's going to be the long-term result of that strike um we can't, we can't fake, we can't, oh, I know, tomorrow I'm going to have a sore hand. Like, we can't figure that part out at all. But, we, but the Buddha says, even though you can't figure out the specific result, you just know that anything that's harmful to beings is going to have some, some kind of painful result sometime. Boy, <laughs> that causes serious. So some, though it sounds to me almost... Almost naively simplistic, almost childlike morality story here. The more I consider it over time, the more I think, actually, I think there's something really profound about this model, and something seems true, and it does seem, it definitely can't be disproven. I think, especially with the three times piece, it's nice because that makes it totally. Um, Unfalsifiable, unfalsifiable. We said it's just in this life. We might. That's what he was. That's what Jayata was questioning. It doesn't seem. Uh, I'm having some doubt about this karma, but the three times <laughs> story makes it work. Mm-hmm. What about DNA and genetics? I mean, like the Brac two gene and things like that. That seems to have a, a karma about it. Yeah, I think we talked about that maybe last year too about DNA. I can't remember somewhere. I, I, I talked with people about DNA. Does seem to be a nice, if it's not really karma exactly. At least it's a great metaphor for how um, how um, cause and effect can play out over time in a mysterious way because we can't really understand exactly how DNA stores results. But I think it's true. DNA stores results. Um, but it's it's a little bit like a, um, it's a uh, DNA is describing a kind of um, genetic blood lineage, right? Family lineage, as opposed to this karma story is describing a causal series lineage that's not um, necessarily family, right? It's it's saying there's this rebirth is not um, is a little different than birth to parents, right? But of course, but it's similar in the sense that we inherit effects from our parents and our grandparents and, and great great grandparents through DNA. Another another way that um, the later Mahayana Buddhist tradition, because I think people were thinking about this karmic thing and trying to understand it. They kind of came up, they, it's attributed to the Buddha in the Mahayana, but it wasn't around in the early teachings. The teaching of the storehouse consciousness, 
is largely a teaching to help understand and help describe exactly what we're talking about. Car- karma and rebirth, I think, is one of the main um, implications and reasons that the storehouse consciousness, alaya vijnana, was taught. So another way of saying it is, this causal series is the storehouse consciousness in the Mahayana, or the storehouse consciousness is just another name for an individual causal series. And the Buddha even talks about the storehouse consciousness being like a river. It's not some, some, like like a safe <laughs> floating in space somewhere, or like a hard drive that's storing all this stuff as some bounded entity. It's just cause and effect, and it's maybe a little dangerous to call it the storehouse consciousness because it makes it sound like some thing. And the Buddha, when he first taught it in the Sandhya Sutra, says, I hesitate to teach this storehouse consciousness because people will grasp it as an independent, separate self. Um, but if we look at it as just causal series, then we could also say that the storehouse consciousness is a little bit like DNA. Storehouse is a nice way... In a way, DNA is a storehouse of information, right? And storehouse is the name. Alaya means storehouse. And uh, it's storing the effects of, kar- of karmic actions. And, that, and the effects um, come to fruition in that storehouse. And then, you know, the Buddha and Vasubandhu and these people use these images like planting seeds and the seeds coming to fruition in the storehouse these metaphors to talk about this really karmic process. It seems like climate change is such a big example of what you're talking about because the effects like of a billion animals dying. Yeah. Say, I mean, it's just... It's so complex. Yeah, it went on for a long time. It's like karma in that it's, um, I mean, it is is group karma, but it it's like these Buddha's teaching of it's, you can't figure it out because it's so complex. And of course, scientists are trying to um, keep pointing out more and more pieces of it. But I think it's going to get bigger and bigger. And we're gonna, the, the pieces are... are um, there's more and more that we won't understand as it, as it keeps changing. Yeah. Have you seen the, the, the book The Body Keeps the Score? No. You, have you heard of it? No, I don't know. Have you, have you been reading it? Lately? A little bit, but I was sort of got a chapter in and haven't gotten much further. It's, it's on the, the way the body, the, the, as this, you know, mm. storehouse, mm-hmm. keeps the score of traumatic experience. Ah, yes, yeah. Lodged in the body. Yes. And then the same thing with what Aaron brought about, DNA, with epigenetics. And like, have you heard the, heard the book called My Grandmother's Hands? Oh, I might oh, have heard of that one. I haven't read it. this way in which cultural trauma mm, can be passed mm. on generationally within DNA very quickly. Like, uh, this, like you know, over millions of lifetimes. Just, just these traces mm-hmm. lodged in physical manifestation that yeah. passed on. Yes. As this other causal series. Yep. But yep. the physicality of it. Yep. I'm not even thinking about the mental, you know, the emotional, it's felt experience. Mm-hmm. Body and mind experiences, yeah. And also, um, um, regarding the body, we also know about, like, um, what is it called? Uh, uh, 
neuroplasticity, right? It means that you can, through our mental experiences, you can change the physical neurons in the brain. We know that too. So, um, yeah, these are all examples of body and mind um, working together to... um, And, of course, interestingly, karma is also... Intentional action is done through body, speech, and mind. So, um, even in in the Mahayana teachings that are emphasizing like mind only, that the body is a, um, is a particular and very intricate um, kind of projection of mind, um, it still fits perfectly with this theory um, that um, the body, almost like the body becomes like um, a type of storehouse consciousness, you could say, that, um, that's, that's storing trauma and DNA um, transmission and these kinds of things are the body is one way that that's used that the causal series uses to evolve something like that whether or not there's anything literally physical or material there or not mm-hmm. yeah just in terms of like not getting caught up even with DNA as a kind of self or a kind of eternal thing um, I think we learn more and more that Certain genes express and certain genes don't. Oh. Genes mutate. Mm. Like, it's not. It's not a concrete thing either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And very mysterious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How this all evolves. Mm-hmm. I know this discussion of karma is foundational to the ancestors awakening. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're exploring this because this is really what brought him to. That clarification for him, so that he had an experiential understanding of karma. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's more to his awakening too. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, hmm, okay. The last, could, I'm sorry, the, I don't want to sidetrack it at all. But could you? Could, I think you just said it when you were last reading in the retelling of the case. But the last sentence of the case... Oh, yeah. Well, is, that part's still to come. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah the last sentence. The, but it's still to come. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say that the original story has these two parts. Mm-hmm. One is about the conventional working of karma yeah. that we're talking about now. And the other part is that um, actually that goes beyond karma. Yeah. That's the other part of the story. Okay. Yeah. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> We might have to get wait till this afternoon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this is a part of the causal. Yeah, the yeah. That um, in the original story, this is was like it's 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 a kind of a um, a causality story. Um, you have faith in the karma in the three times, but you haven't yet clarified the fact that karma is produced from delusion, delusion from consciousness, consciousness from ignorance, ignorance from pure mind. There's that whole part we haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. So, um, so all this story that we're telling, that's why it's nice to call this whole story of the causal series and even cause and effect, especially in the Mahayana teachings, is called conventional truth. <laughs> ultimate, like Nagarjuna gets into this, is like, ultimately speaking, there isn't really such thing as cause and effect. It's, a ve- it's like the most basic um, workings of our life. 
but uh, but the guardian is teaching. He keeps trying to examine how this this cause produces this effect, and when we look for something, some causality to get a hold of, there we can't find it. The actually cause and effect, which is such a fundamental, even more fundamental than karma, that causes produce effects. Even that is just a, really a conventional truth in, in, the, in the more radical Buddhist teachings. So, um, but to continue with karma here a little bit more, uh, um, Kazan is now, um, goes on to say, as for karma in the three times, <clears throat> the first is karma that bears results in the present life and it bears here is this is the um, Japanese um, term gen as in genjo koan so we could even say it like first is karma that manifests results in the present life uh, dogen and dogen loves this word manifest and it, I think it's a helpful word because it shows how um, we already get a hint here as um it's not so much that the results are um, are just really here. It's kind of emphasizing that well, results are manifesting. They're appearing. You could even maybe say it is appear. The first is karma that appear. The results appear in the present life. When good and bad karma is performed in the present life, then one will receive the results in the present life. The second is karma that bears consequences in the next life. The five unpardonable transgressions and the heinous crimes of Buddhism and uh, the seven deadly transgressions necessarily bear their consequences in the next life. Or even sometimes they say immediate, immediate retribution, which is an interesting teaching that the most horrible actions come to fruition very quickly. And I think this is somewhat true in our life. Doesn't it seem that if we, um, you know, if we really just scream at somebody and hit them, we immediately, pretty much immediately, feel like unpleasantness. (laughs) We're probably already feeling unpleasantness, but with the effects, oh, I really, oh, that we, um, as a practitioner especially, if we if we really do something um, uh, so, so harmful, we, we immediately feel regret. Whereas something just a little bit, we, don't, we barely notice that we even do it, maybe the effect comes much later. Like we just, we just mention, we just talk to somebody in a way that's not yelling at them, but we just say something in a way that's like a little bit off or a little bit praising self and belittling the other or something. We don't really notice but then, like, a week later, I mean, I know sometimes this happens to me, a week later, I think, it comes up in a, in a dream or a, me- a memory or during zazen, like, oh, when I said that, that was a little bit off how I said that to that person. But I'm only remembering it now because it was kind of subtle. You know how that's true? Mm-hmm. So, I think it, so uh, I think it's somewhat experiential teaching that really, really horrible actions have immediate results. John Lennon sings, right? Instant karma is going to get you. <laughs> going to knock you off your feet. 
so um this these um these heinous crimes of, I don't know if you've heard this list in Buddhism they're pretty bad <laughs> this is the Buddhist like this is this is like really problematic killing your father killing your mother killing an arhat like a awakened being um, drawing the blood of a Buddha so they don't they maybe don't can't even put killing a Buddha is like um, too extreme to even put on the list. <laughs> the Buddha, there was only one Buddha in that time, right? And if you even like harm him so much as to like draw some blood, that's like as bad as killing your father, mother, <laughs> in all teachings. And then um, uh, that's um, four. And then interesting, the fifth is causing a schism in the sangha, which I when I first heard that list, I'm like, wow, <laughs> Buddha's making a big deal. That's like, causing a split in the Sangha is like, like killing your parents. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he was just trying to make some point to, to, his, um, to his students at that time, like, be careful. Especially given how often it happens. <laughs> how often it happens. You know, hard to know exactly what a schism Means, of course, there's disharmony in sanghas often, but I, I think it's really um, like like um, Devadatta in the early teachings was one who is really trying to kind of debunk the Buddha's teachings and um, say he's wrong about these things. Come on, you students of Buddha, come with me, and we're going to start our own group, and we're going to be like stricter than the Buddha because he's he's kind of like not so good, you know. And like, and it started working, and they had they had these this group, and like, I think when it gets like that, like really antagonistic, you know, um, it's bad. <laughs> so I think it's a just it's a nice sobering reminder of like, um, let's really try to keep harmony in the sangha at all cost. And then um, what were the so that's the five. Um, heinous crimes, and then I hadn't heard this list of seven is the same five, but also adding on um, killing one's own teacher and killing any somewhat realized being, even if they're not an arhat. <laughs> Just try avoiding killing everyone. That about covers it. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't cover, like, Killing an ordinary person, actually, that's pretty pretty serious too. But it, but um, I think uh, these these are like the immediate retribution is. I think there's some stories in the early sutras of um, somebody actually. I think kills their father, and he like immediately starts vomiting blood, and like there's kind of like extreme immediate effects. Um, uh, very unpleasant effects, right? Um, if Kazan goes on, if one accumulates karma in the present life, the results are experienced in the third or fourth lifetime, is the third time, or even during innumerable lifetimes in the future. Thus, even though one receives good results in the present because of good karma in the past, the result may not be identical because of ancient karma in past lifetimes, so this is this idea of what's happening now is due to the past, stuff we don't know about. So, so in our um, 
in our confession verse, all my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, right? We we fully avow. I think the the original meaning is not even just this lifetime, but like all uh, in this causal series, all the stuff. I don't know that I, not some separate self, but I, the causal series, did in innumerable past lives. I confess and repent all that. I I regret. I, I don't even remember what it was, but I regret it. <laughs> and, I, and I vow not to cause harm in the present life. That's the spirit of that awesome verse from the Avatam Saka Sutra that we chant. Uh, people with so-called unmixed good or bad karma or pure, purely good or purely bad experience good or bad results accordingly in the present and those with mixed good and bad karma receive mixed good and bad results um, which I think is a strange idea what? Wouldn't everybody be mixed? That's, that's why I think it's strange yeah, wouldn't everybody be mixed yeah but um, maybe if we look at particular particular actions might be like some actions might even be somewhat have s- somewhat good intention and somewhat um, not so good intention like like this <sighs> action has somewhat good intention because it's trying to demonstrate some dharma principles here but has not such a good intention of like hurting myself and therefore it has somewhat positive effect of like um, it made you laugh a little bit makes me happy. And somewhat negative effect of like, my hand is kind of sore now. Maybe that would be like a, mix, a, a mixed action. In advance, though, how do you know? Yeah, well, we, I think that's the whole thing about intention is we just try to um, practice wholesome intentions. We don't really know. But the Bodhisattva precepts are a great guide, right? These 16 precepts are like, um, these are like good... Um, general guidelines and there's exceptions to every one of them even in the even in the old teachings there's exceptions to every one of them that are brought up for bodhisattvas because bodhisattvas are always about benefiting beings in any possible way so sometimes they break precepts to benefit beings so that's why we don't know and then that would maybe be another mixed result one right then you know they have to they have there's no alternative have to kill this person because that person's going to kill a thousand other people and um, so may- maybe if there's no other way maybe you have to um, to pinpoint them with a drone <laughs> and try not to kill anyone around them but they, you don't know they're going to kill those people until they've killed them yeah so in, this, in those old stories where they bring up those those drone examples in the old sutras. <laughs> yeah. They say, um, it's like um, somebody knows. They, they saw, they saw, a, um, they saw a, uh, you know, a, a written plan from that person. Like, I am planning to kill them tomorrow. And, so we, and we know there's no other way. You think, well, can't they just lock them up? But there's, this is um, the, the old example is they're on a ship at sea and they're going to kill everyone on the ship so there's no escaping from them there's no chains on the ship to lock them up I don't know there's there's no these hypothetical examples but in real life we don't really know so um, we always just make our best guess 
that's all we have to go on. With the, in, in line a little bit with her question, like I, I, I wondered, is there ever an end to the effect either? Like, um, I, I thought about the story of the, the Tibetan story with the, the guy who finds a horse, <laughs> and falls off the horse, yeah. and then he gets saved from going to war. Mm -hmm. So it's like some action started that. Yeah. There were good effects mm -hmm. and bad effects, yeah. good effects and bad effects. Is there ever like a penultimate, like, this was the effect. Well, like in in, in the causal series, you could say it's beginningless, endless causal series. The only end of a any end of the, you know through through billions of rebirths, beginningless. We usually say there's no end to any causal series except total awakening. Interestingly, is the only way to end a causal series. So, so um, death does not end it. So if if we're having a hard time, suicide doesn't, just creates worse karmic effects for that causal series in the Buddhist model. Whereas, um, but there is this way to end the causal series called like nirvana, complete realization of nirvana. And that was kind of the goal in early Buddhism was to end the, the causal series. Interesting. So maybe that's the only way to judge the effect is like, does it get the causal series closer to total awakening or yeah, it's, if it's evolving like that. But you could say, otherwise, the, there's no end to the causal series. But each individual action, even in that story, right, they bought the horse and then they fell off the horse, you could say. That's the effect of that action. But then their falling off the horse is, becomes a cause for um, getting to rest in the hospital as a good effect or something, right? So um, I think the Buddhist teaching is saying that each particular action does come to a particular effect and uh, has to come to fruition but it's not like that's the end of the story there's and there's infinite one, causes and effects playing out at the same time but um, as I understand part of this early Buddhist story too is that the um, if there's effects like for this for this arhat to end the causal series if there's any karmic effects that haven't come to fruition yet in that causal series, um, they're going to have to come to effect before the causal series ends. Interestingly, it's part of this descript complex description of karma, so that um, that uh, sometimes it might be like somebody's realized this fruition of the realized arhat in this life, but they're still alive, but because of past lifetimes of of negative actions that haven't come to fruition, the rest of their life as an arhat is going to be really painful. They're going to have all kinds of horrible things happen to them, which, from their point of view, is a very good thing. Uh, because, yeah, kind of burns through so that they won't... Because if there's any residual cause that hasn't come to effect, you're going to need another lifetime to do it. So something like this is kind of complicated. <laughs> this story... Um, so, uh, so this, this pure, this mixed and unmixed karma, right? And then Kezan also says, also, as a result of the power of practicing the Buddha Dharma, grave karmic results, grave negative karmic actions are converted into light results, and light ones become non-existent in the present. Interesting, huh? So um, he's saying through practicing, the, 
practicing Zen can reduce the effects of actions. And uh, what's the principle there? We might, we might say partly it's practicing we're more accepting because part of Zen practice is I, I, I'm accepting what's coming to me. I really, that's my, I'm really trying to accept what's coming to me and therefore a, an effect, painful, any painful thing happens. And, okay, I accept it. That means it's less painful than if I didn't accept it. See, that, that could work. So, the, so that would be, a, I think, a true principle of how by practicing it reduces the effect the negative effect of karma. And oh yeah, it's something like that. When you are suffering, like, be happy that you're burning through your karma. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're meeting it with this full wholeheartedness, mm-hmm. which completely transforms it. Yeah, um, something that you're like trying to avoid and push away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It transforms the effect. And um, another way of talking about it, maybe actually this, maybe a very similar way, but this is an interesting sutra in the, the Pali Canon, the early teachings, called the Salt Crystal Discourse. And um, so the Buddha says, there's the case where a trifling harmful deed done by a certain person takes him to hell. Like a re- which is called a, a very painful karmic effect. Buddhism has heavens and hells too, right? Which are called very blissful and very painful experience. Um, this there is also the case where the very same sort of trifling deed done by another individual is experienced here and now, and for the most part, barely appears for a moment. Now, a trifling harmful deed done by what sort of individual? takes that person to hell, or a very painful effect. There's the case where that person is undeveloped in contemplating body, undeveloped in virtue, undeveloped in mind, undeveloped in discernment, restricted, small-hearted, dwelling with suffering. A trifling harmful action done by that person has a big painful effect. And then there's the case where a person is developed in contemplating body, developed in virtue, and developed in mind, in discernment, unrestricted, large-hearted, dwelling with immeasurable concentration. Then a trifling harmful deed done by that person is experienced here and now, and for the most part barely appears at all. And then the Buddha says, suppose that a person were to drop a salt crystal into a small amount of water in a cup. What do you think? Would the water in the cup become salty because of the saw crystal and unfit to drink? And the the students say, Yes, Bhagavan. Why? Because there's only a small amount of water, so it becomes very salty. And then the Buddha says, Suppose a person were to drop a salt crystal into the river Ganges. What do you think? Would the whole river become salty because of that and unfit to drink? No, it would not, because there's a lot of water in the Gandhis, it would not become unfit to drink. Interesting, huh? So uh, the Buddha is getting into these, all these, some of these details about karma. And again, I think we see it's true that, like, if if um, if if somebody is um, constantly getting arrested for crimes over and over again, 
and then they just do one small thing, that's they're going to go to prison. Whereas if, if somebody has a good record and they do the same thing, they may be like, well, we'll, we'll let you go this time. Things like that happen in the world, I think. So, so it's not so mysterious. I think it's just kind of practical teaching. So, so the moral of the story is if we're generally practicing virtue and according with the precepts, we can, we can slip up here and there sometimes and it's, it's okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we try not to, but we, we, get, we get a little more leeway. We see it happen in the world, right? But if we're, if we're constantly um, going astray and messing up, we get le- people give us less leeway in the world. Interesting. This means that evil causes or harmful causes in the past eons, Kazan says, ought to be experienced in the future as severe suffering, but sometimes they're experienced lightly because of the power of practicing the Dharma. One may be ill, things may not work out well, people may uh, make fun of what you say. <laughs> Uh, these are all examples of receiving lightly in the present what would be severe suffering in the future. Thus the power of practicing Buddha Dharma should be relied on more and more. Results of bad karma in the distant past can all be made light only if you're courageous and vigorous. Even though as students you understand the way very well, you may have a bad reputation, you may fail in your efforts, or your health may be bad. If you realize that these are examples of grave results changing and being experienced lightly, you will not bear a grudge or resent against malicious people who harm you. That's what Mako is saying about Bodhidharma, right? We we accept um, uh, harmful things and don't um, resent it. Even though people may slander and injure you, do not blame them. Even though these slanderers are venerated and respected, do not hate them. The karma of practicing the way grows daily, and harmful residual karma of former lives decreases. But practice carefully and thoroughly. Yeah. So one last story is case 97 in the Blue Cliff Record. It's really about this too. Called um, the Diamond Sutra's scornful revilement. So they took this occasionally in the um, in these koan collections. They just take an excerpt paragraph from a sutra and call it a koan if they think there's something really juicy about this paragraph. And this is definitely not the main teaching of the Diamond Sutra, but um, the compiler of the Blue Cliff Record pulled out this. Um, Diamond Sutra quote and made it into a koan, which is something to contemplate on for a long time. So this, this strange section of the Diamond Sutra says, if one is scornfully reviled by others, this person has done harmful karma in previous ages, which should bring him down into painful realms. But because of the scorn and revilement by others now, the harmful karma of former ages is thereby extinguished. So I think this is kind of the same principle. 
And I think there's early Buddhist teachings that um, I've heard some people, Theravada teachers, say that actually it doesn't really work this way. This, this idea of kind of so-called burning off karma, as we're saying, is not really exactly part of, in the Buddha's early teachings. I think we do have these things like practicing makes the effects less, but it's not like you can exactly um, burn off the result. Um, but maybe if, if we say um, you have to experience... I think maybe the key thing is you have to experience the result. And so if you're willing to experience it now, you don't have to later. <laughs> and if you're willing to experience it now, then um, that willingness makes it lighter than it would be later in an, with unwillingness. Maybe something so like that. interest or something. Yeah, yeah. maybe there's interest too. Yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe in that way we could call it burning off. <laughs> it's more like maybe maybe more accurately we would say like we're letting we're letting the karmic effects come to fruition. We're letting them come to fruition. Maybe what we mean by burning off. It's not so much eliminating. I think that that idea of if there's something we can do to magically eliminate effects of karma, like sometimes we say. Um, in our, in our ordination ceremonies, it's kind of implied in, in the Zen realm of like, we, we, we do this All My Ancient Twisted Karma verse, and we do this Abhisheka with, um, with sacred water, and we say, now all the karma from, uh, from the past has been entirely eradicated. We make these awesome radical statements like that. Right? And maybe in terms of the principle of karma, it's like, well, can we really just do that with some water and a verse? But, um, but uh, maybe this afternoon we can explore this kind of other, the rest of the story and the other side of um, if we really understand karma through, this, through wisdom in this way, then maybe... Um, eradication may be possible. <laughs> but not in the way we think, that we just don't have to experience painful things. So, yeah. Interesting. Zen ancestor gets us into study of karma. Karma and rebirth. 